This is the Let's Grab Coffee podcast, and I'm your host, George Khalifa. I have to say, first of all, um, especially with this whole quarantine and, and working from home and staying at home, I probably have finished almost every show on Netflix, and I'm kind of running out, Mark, so I'm, I'm starting to get scared. Well, considering they're probably creating 24 hours of 25 <laughs> hours of programming every 24 hours, I think that's going to be quite a, uh, a, a, an achievement if you can actually keep up. You've got to be watching on two screens simultaneously, I think. A, a lot of multitasking. Before we, we delve into the whole kind of business side of things, but uh, what, are, are you currently watching? I had to ask you this up front. And if so, what, 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 may be, what are your shows right now or movies that, that you're on? Well, you know, I'm like you as I'm chewing through things pretty quickly. And of course, we all watch as a family. We all watched uh, Tiger King, which was pretty yes. remarkable. Um, <laughs> I guess one of my other uh, guilty pleasures was watching Love is Blind, which I thought was surprisingly nice. actually good. Um, and su- surprisingly good and a, and a good surprise um, uh, from a reality show. Uh, and now my wife and I are almost two-thirds of the way through the most recent season of Ozark. Ozark. I was going to ask yeah, about so. that. I'm like, are you on that as well? As, that was an amazing series, by the way. Yeah. There's been some, there's amazing television. And, you know, it's not just Netflix. There's amazing things. Of course. It's a great time to be a TV watcher because there's amazing things coming out all over the place. And, and what, what I found interesting, too, as I was doing the, the sort of background story is the anniversary was not too long ago. It was almost like a week ago, right on, on the 14th of April. Yeah, it was last. It was last Tuesday. Last so it was the fourteenth. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, happy so anniversary to us. 22, uh, 22 wonderful cheers, years. I don't know if you can see the coffee, but cheers to that. Um, and you know, as a birthday present, uh, Netflix hit its fifth, its lifetime stock high on that day. So I think it must have known that everyone was going to be watching, <laughs> and it had to like do something to show up. Exactly. Well, walk me through, and for a lot of people listening, they might not know this, but. You know, this was kind of early 2000s. Um, it, was, it was an interesting time for you, you know, and, and for the company as well. You were just below 100 uh, employees, around that 3 million in, in revenue mark. Um, and and, and what's, what's interesting is you walk, I think, to the 20, or take the elevator to the 27th floor of, of Blockbuster and you have this meeting. And this meeting was about finding strategic alliances, right? Because at the time you're looking to pivot. Walk me through what that experience was like when you walk into the boardroom and, and start that presentation? What was going through your mind? Well, the first thing is people should know is that the term strategic alliances um, is a euphemism. And it's, it's more specifically, it's strategic alternatives. And it basically means how do we put a good face in the fact we have to sell the company, that we're so desperately in trouble that the only way out is to pass our problems off to a much bigger company. And as you pointed out, Netflix at the time, and this was you know probably the fall of 2000, we were tiny you know we had a hundred or so employees you know in the three to five million dollars in revenue that year but what you didn't mention was that we were 50 million dollars in in the hole that we had taken in 50 million dollars in venture money and it was hemorrhaging out the door and ironically it was hemorrhaging out the door because we had finally stumbled on the business model that would actually work We'd finally found something that customers would pay more for than it cost us to provide the service, which if you remember the dot-com era back in 2000, that was a pretty unusual proposition. Mm-hmm. But it was a confusing business model. And so uh, to get people to subscribe, we had to give them a first month free. And they were taking it up in droves. And of course, 
providing first month free um, is expensive. And so when you're successful, ironically, you can go broke being successful. So we said, okay, how do we get out of this? And decided the only way out was Blockbuster. And they were in a totally different spot. You know, they were huge. Uh, they were, I think, a $6 billion company at that time. And they had 60,000 employees and, you know, 9,000 stores. And we were this insignificant little gnat. Um, and when they called us, when they finally called us to take the meeting after months of trying, uh, it turns out we were on this corporate retreat in Santa Barbara. Uh, and that's when they said, we'll want to see you in the next morning in Dallas. Mm. And so we were flying suddenly from this corporate retreat. And all I had with me was shorts and a t-shirts <laughs> and uh, flip flops. And, you know, um, I remember my partner, Reed Hastings had a, his dress up attire was a Hawaiian shirt. And so you got to picture us, me and my shorts and a t-shirt and reading his Hawaiian shirt, walking into the Blockbuster headquarters, into this cavernous conference room. Everybody's in suits. The size of a football field. And there, you know, and actually I, I told the story before and, and John, John Antioco, who was the uh, CEO of Blockbuster at the time, said, that's not right because I, would, I never wore a suit. And I go, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I found these pictures of him at the time. And of course, he's wearing a pair of loafers, which probably cost more than three of my suits. So you, but it's still the same difference. But anyway, we come in and Reed and I and our CFO, Barry McCarthy, make the pitch that we wanna, want them to buy us and that we will join the companies that we will run, us Silicon Valley guys, will run the online part of the business they'll run the stores and then the real win-win is that we'll find the synergies between an online model and a bricks and mortar model and everyone wins. And it was actually going pretty well because they were nodding and they were asking good questions, but then they asked the big question, which is how much should how we much? pay for you? Right. And, and we had talked about it on the plane. Um, and the answer was, we said $50 million. Okay, we had pulled that out of our butt because that was how much we owed the VCs. And we figured at least we'll get out with our head above water. Um, and they laughed at us. I uh, know not, maybe not literally, but you could kind of tell they were shaking their heads at the hubris, this little tiny company with a negative balance sheet that was only a couple of years old in the midst of the dot-com collapse could possibly ask for $50 million. And it was, of course, really disappointing because for a while there, I had thought we're saved. You know, this will be the, the deus ex machina, the, the hand of God that comes down and rescues us from the seemingly insurmountable problems. And when they didn't, and in fact, when it turns out even worse, now we were going to have to compete with them. Well, it was very, very sobering. Uh, because, and we realized fundamentally that there was no easy out. And this happens all the time in business, that there is no magic trick. There is no secret that you're going to find that will make your problems go away. And that sometimes, as my dad used to tell me, the only way out is through. Um, and it reinforced our commitment that we had to do everything we possibly could to find our way through. Yeah, and, and, and what I love about the story as well is 
um, so, so you and Reed were both working at the same company. Uh, and at one point it was getting acquired. Was it not? Oh, sorry, he was leading, I think, the, the company at the time. Uh, and when it got acquired, you were basically given six months uh, to act in kind of a, I guess, an advisor capacity. And instead of using that time to kind of mull over things and maybe, you know, uh, I don't, I don't, I don't want to use a swear word, but like, let's say, you know, uh, BS and complain, uh, you use that six months to really study up the market and just generate ideas. And that's one of the things you, you, you preach about is it's not always just about that one eureka moment idea. It's about a bunch of sometimes really shitty ideas, really great ideas that trickle into something amazing. And, and so can you walk us through that as well? Yes, yeah, certainly. I mean, there's a bunch of things, threads we can pull on there. Um, the, 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 I'll start with, the, with the, idea, the whole point of ideas um, and that you're right. You know, everyone loves the epiphany story, you know, that, that moment that everything becomes clear and the seas part or the clouds go away and all of a sudden, boom, it's obvious and perfect. And, you know, we've heard all those stories about, you know, eBay came from selling Pez, his girlfriend's Pez dispensers on eBay, uh, uh, online or Uber came from, uh, can't get a, uh, a limo on New Year's Eve or something like that. But the thing is, all of these companies have very, very complicated patrimonies with many, 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 many fathers and mothers. And it's because uh, ideas are usually terrible. In fact, almost universally, they're terrible. And that the entrepreneur's job is not to sift through all these ideas and identify the one perfect and true ideas. It's to figure out some way to try all these ideas and learn from firsthand experience which of the ideas hold a glimmer of hope in becoming something. And this was no different for Reed Hastings and I. And that you're right, you know, he had a he had, was a company that he had started and founded and had grown into a pretty big multinational company that had acquired a small startup that I was, uh, that I had helped start, which at the time had about a dozen employees. We were brand new. Um, and he acquired that company and all of those guys who were mostly engineers got relegated to a business unit in the basement of the building. But I uh, became head of marketing for this big, all of a sudden, multinational corporation. But more importantly, became working very closely with Reed. Mm -hmm. And then the second kind of wonderful thing that happened was it turns out that Reed and I lived in the same town. So, excuse me, we began carpooling back and forth to work together. And so became friends that way. And so when we sold this company to an even bigger software company, and when we heard that that new company was not going to need the services of Reed nor I, and that we both would have six months in our hands waiting for the dust to settle on the merger, that we both decided wouldn't it be cool to come up with an idea for a company. Um, and I knew that I was, that, that was my next step was to launch another company because Netflix was actually number six. Reed did not want to start another company. He was going to go get a higher degree in education so he could really advance the world of education as a philanthropist. But we had to come up with the idea together. And that's what led to these carpool rides where we chewed through hundreds, hundreds of ideas for what might possibly make up an interesting company um, to start. And, and yeah. they, they were, I, th I thought, a lot of great ideas. And you probably read about, you know, one of them was um, custom shampoo, 
where uh, people at home would cut off a small lock of their hair and they would mail it to us. And then our team of crack hair scientists <laughs> would formulate the custom shampoo just for them. And I thought that was a great idea. And of course, Reed managed to poke all kinds of holes in it. And then another one was um, custom personalized dog food where we formulated a blend specifically for your dog's breed, its weight, its gender, its age, its climate, its activity level. And I thought that was a great idea. And you see, my criteria were pretty simple. I just wanted this new company to involve selling something on the internet right. and ideally have an element of personalization in it. And then one of the ideas was, uh, you know, video rental by mail, which if you, Think about what that must have been like 23 years ago. It was ridiculous. I mean, because back then, video the rental cassettes. was those VHS cassettes. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, they were heavy and expensive. And there was, was 9,000 blockbusters, as we mentioned before. I mean, who in their right mind would think about doing video rental by mail? And it was only when a, a month after the original idea came up that we heard about the DVD mm. and realized that might solve at least a few of the huge numbers of problems in a video rental by mail business that we decided that maybe this was something worth trying after all. Yeah, well, exactly. And I think that's the gist that I get from, from those ideas that you were mentioning. Uh, like, you know, the, the hair, for example, the, uh, what, what you pointed out was the personalization of it. And I think if you look at Netflix, one of the biggest kind of benefits and advantages of it today is that personalization aspect that's still ingrained in the platform. You know, whether it's the trending or whether it's, hey, I think, you know, you'd, you'd really enjoy these kinds of movies. But back then, you know, I think you, you guys were also at, at a crossroads. You were trying to, you know, rent these, these DVDs, but you were also selling these DVDs by mailing them. And kind of the biggest innovation was you were doing it through a, an e-commerce platform and that you were mailing them. So you kind of had the convenience play there. Uh, a lot of your revenue relied on, on selling those DVDs. But you also knew at the heart of things that because it was very kind of commodity based, that this is a dying business. When you are at that crossroads, what do you think of as a CEO who has to innovate at, at some point in time? Well, you're always recognizing that you have to do two things simultaneously, which is you've got to be looking at the road right in front of you. So the, especially in a startup, because that road in front of you is pretty bumpy and it's usually untraveled lots of potholes, down trees, wild animals. So you're constantly steering and changing direction rapidly and you're, you're focused right in front of you. But you've gotta have your eye up on the horizon so you have a distant sense of where you're going. And the problem with being in the business where most of your revenue is coming from selling DVDs is we could see that if we continued down that road for too much longer, it would go off a cliff. Mm -hmm. And it would go off a cliff because of Amazon. And it's hard to imagine that time, this is again back in 1998, that Amazon only sold books. It was a bookstore, but it was no secret that Jeff Bezos planned to have it be the everything store and pretty obvious the first two categories that he'd expand to would be video and music. And so <laughs> selling DVDs was gonna be a dead end. But again, as you pointed out, it was 99% of our revenue. And so that requires this really challenging decision, which is, do you stick with the safe business that's paying 99% of your, re of your revenue, 99% of your salary, 99% of your rent, um, 
but eventually, slowly but surely, will have its margins eroded and it'll, it'll go out of business? Or do you bet it all on something which is completely unproven, which you're having an almost impossible time getting anyone to do? And if they do it, they won't do it more than once. And then especially, what do you do when those two businesses interfere with each other? When every effort you make to keep your online sales business alive is ironically making it harder to get your rental business right because of distraction, because of confusion, because of dilution. Um, and so you have to do that thing which takes tremendous coverage to say it's more important to take a long shot bet on something that if we get it right could be hugely successful than it is to ride the sure thing into, into almost certain oblivion. And it's easy to say that, but the act of doing it is terrifying. And there was one moment, and this is in the summer of 1998, oh, the fall of 1998, which is less than six months after we even launched, when we pulled the plug and in a single day walked away from all of selling DVDs and said, we got to focus every ounce of, every ounce of uh, attention we have on renting and figuring that out. Um, and that moment where all your revenue goes away uh, has a way of focusing your mind. Well, it, that, that's what's funny because when, when I was listening to you, to your talk and you mentioning this this portion, and I think you kind of asked uh, a rhetorical question on these two paths. You know, which one which one did you think we would take? And I think you know probably in, in the audience, some people would have thought you know you you just stuck to uh, you know the the, the buying of, of of DVDs just because that's where most of your, your revenue came from. But you went the complete other other uh, way and. Doing that must have been scary. And I think that's another point you make about entrepreneurship is that the risk is not about, you know, the, the dangerous risks that we know of, like jumping off a cliff, you know, and, and paragliding down or something. But it's, it's just dealing with ambiguity and not knowing what's going to happen if you make a decision and you just stick to it. Yeah, I think that is the single biggest challenge is you have to do things which you don't know what the outcome is going to be. You have to start down trails where you can't see around the corner. And what most people do is they stand at the trailhead paralyzed and they're trying to look or they're trying to get up on a stump to look or they're asking people who are coming back the other way. I mean, they're doing everything they can to understand what's around the corner because they don't want to start unless they know they can succeed. And fundamentally, what an entrepreneur does is goes, well, the best way to see what's around the corner is to walk up to the corner. And... Uh, it's amazing. You get to the corner and all of a sudden you have a view another half a mile down the trail. Uh, and that's the very nature. You have no idea if you're going to be successful or not. You have no idea what the company's going to look like, what the problem you're going to solve, how you're going to solve it. But you do that by taking these incremental steps. And a lot of times you go to the corner and turn the corner and there's a cliff or there's a, 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 something blocking the way. And you go, okay. And you backtrack 100 feet to this little footpath you saw going off in the different direction and you try that one and it's this it's this sequential never-ending pursuit of trying to figure out what path to go down when there's really no hint about where they lead that is in fact what an entrepreneur does all day hmm. when did you guys basically pivot from the whole kind of dvd the mail the uh the renting space into uh, the streaming, like when did that start becoming apparent into, into that? That's kind of where this whole thing is headed towards. 
Well, I'm going to pull out one thing, one word you use, which is when did it become apparent? Yeah. And it became apparent on day one, it became apparent on day negative 180. You know, <laughs> you know that the book I wrote that just came out, uh, which is called that will never work is called that will never work because that is what every single person told me when I pitched them the idea of doing DVD rental by mail, um, including my wife, by the way. Thank you very much <laughs> for the support and the confidence. But um, the reason they said that was for two reasons. One was the obvious one, the 9,000 blockbuster stores, which I mentioned a little earlier. But the other one is a lot of people said, DVD is a digital medium, that it is just a matter of time before a digital medium gets transmitted digitally, where it's delivered to you over a wire or through the air, who knows how. But when that happens, who needs DVDs? And boom, you're gone. That's going to happen in weeks or months. And the crazy part is they're right. It was 100% known that eventually movies and TV shows would be delivered digitally. The question was when. And Reed and I believed it was going to be a long time. Uncertain, but certainly not measured in months. Definitely measured in years. That you know, Hollywood was terrified of letting the digital cat out of the bag. They'd seen what happened to the music industry when Napster came along. Mm. Um, there was no fast internet connection to the house. And when there was, it was connected to your computer, not to your television set. There was a ton of reasons. There was no digital rights management. There was a ton of reasons why it wasn't going to happen soon. So the challenge was how do you build a company which could succeed now? In other words, steer down those road around those potholes and stumps in the road but yet recognize that there was going to come a time when DVDs were no longer a thing. So we had to build a company that worked now. And if we had made that company all about, we are the fastest way to ship plastic, it would have been great at the beginning, but, but it deadly would have at the end. deadly at the end because all these customers who thought of us as a plastic shipping company would have gone somewhere else to stream their movies. But if we had said on day one, this is the future of all about streaming. No one would have cared because no one had the capacity to do it and there was no content. So the long way of getting to it, the way we solved that, and I think is actually one of the more clever things we did, was we positioned the company as the world's uh, best way to find entertainment that you love. Because mm. that was delivery agnostic. That worked whether you chose to go wander a video store, whether you came online, look at a video store. It works in the future when you're streaming. It'll work 100 years from now when we're beaming it telepathically into your head, whatever. It's about the connection between you and content. And we began working on that from day one, which is, you know, we began saying from day one, we want to have every single title available, which was all of 900 titles. And then... We began saying we want to make find it easier ways to find movies, which became at that point editorial curation and building deep content. And then it became all this work on the algorithm. And so when it came time to trend, when all of a sudden the world did become ready for streaming, and this was 10 years later, this was 2007, 1998, we had already been doing this for 10 years. We had already made tremendous progress in helping mash people with movies they liked. And they thought of us as a company to find entertainment they liked. And so all of a sudden when the option came, well, you can either keep getting it on DVD or you can 
stream it, that did not seem as an unnatural thing. So this huge transition point was not something that took place over a matter of months. This was something that we had been working on and preparing ourselves for, for a moment we did not know exactly when it was going to happen for 10 years. Yeah, but you are right in the sense of, of market timing. Like it's so critical that even though you knew that from the start, when to launch and when to be that type of platform is what matters here, right? And it was kind of similar. I think at one point you guys called yourself the Amazon.com of, uh, of, of entertainment, I think, or, or something of, of that gist. But, but I think uh, Amazon was, was very similar, right? They started with books, and, but Bezos had his eyes set on the everything uh, platform. So, so I think for a lot of people listening, like how do you, was it your intuition? Was it market research? Was it user consensus or sentiment? Like how did you know in your gut this wasn't the right time to, to launch this now, even though that was the vision? Well, it didn't take much of a gut. It was obvious that it was not the time to launch it now in 1997. For all the reason I explained, the content that might have been available on DVD, uh, pardon me, for streaming rights, we would have had a, a manga catalog or we would have had, you know, a Bollywood greatest hits. It would, it would have been a very, very different business. And it would have been limited to people who actually had a fast enough internet connection in their house and were willing to sit in front of their laptop computer to watch it. I mean, it, it was just wrong. So the cleverness was building a business which worked now where we could continue to make efforts and that every single piece of market share and mind share we captured was directly transferable. And at the beginning in 2007, we didn't do this by saying, okay, new company. Now you have to join this. You, we just said, hey, in addition to now getting the DVDs, if you want, just click here and you can try streaming it. And a few brave souls did for the small number of titles in the catalog they could. And it was not the reason they were subscribing. They were still paying their probably $14.95 a month it was back then, $9.95 a month back then. And just saw this as just one additional way to get movies. It felt totally natural to them. So it, it, th this issue of when is the time right? The trick is to position yourself so that you're ready when the time is right. And you haven't bet everything on guessing when the time is right. You know, just to quick do a quick segue, I'm not sure exactly when we're going to be, when people are going to be watching this. But, you know, right now when we're recording it, we're in the midst of this whole COVID situation. Everything is shut down and everyone's wondering, how do I prepare my business for that? And some people are getting all caught up on saying, wow, how do I accurately predict when the business is going to be ready? I can know how to scale the business so they go okay i'm going to pick july and the answer is you have to do the same thing netflix did is you've got to bring your business down to a place you can be in a crouched position mm. not ready to take business instantaneously but ready to be ready to take business on some amount of notice six weeks four weeks whatever your business accommodates and it was the same thing for us we were in the crouch waiting for the time to be right to stream for 10 years. And we didn't spring out of the crouch all at once. We said, when we see it coming, we're gonna get plenty of lead time and then we can begin easing our way into it. In fact, my, you know, I left Netflix in many years before that first streaming in 2007, I left in 2003. Mm -hmm. um, and my last project at Netflix was working on this initial streaming work. 
was working on what could the catalog look like? What will the technology look like? Wow. Well, that's four years before we did it. Yeah. And that's why it's so interesting is like, you know, four years before the launch, you, you know, you, you guys with the team are, are really sitting on whiteboard and just kind of visualizing what that's going to look like. And back to that point about ideating, right? You have to, as an entrepreneur, you have to be someone who constantly has the capacity for ideas, which you talk a lot about. And I think that that hits that point home. And I, I think one of the things I did want to ask too is before you had left, I think it was in 02 when you took the company public. Um, how, how was that feeling like? Like when you, you know, when you rang the bell to this whole ceremony, what was that, what was that feeling like? And um, is that where you, were you, were you, were you happy? Where, you know, did you feel that kind of a bit of success? I'm just curious to see from, from a founder perspective. Well, it's a little bit um, anticlimactic, at least it was for me. Because you're right, it's kind of held out as the the uh, brass ring that mm-hmm. you're grasping for for the entire time, and and not irrationally so, because when you're starting a company, you're assembling a team of people with various motivations, and certainly one of the partners you bring on board are your is the venture capitalists who are funding this crazy thing. And it, you, you have to acknowledge from the beginning that they're not giving you $50 million or $150 million, I think the total capitalization we took in over the years. They're not doing that because they're inspired by your vision or that, oh, he's a great guy. We want to give him his shot. Yeah. They're inspired to do that because of the hopes and, in fact, the expectation that not only will you give them their money back, but you their money back times 10. Yeah. And the only way to do that is to have the so-called liquidity event, which is either selling the company or uh, taking it public. Uh, and not just that, you've also have employees who you've been compensating for years yeah. with a mix of salary, usually lower than market, plus stock options, which is options to purchase the stock at a discounted price at the time. Um, and the only way those become value is as if there's a public market for the equity. So, Yes, you, you, you kind of want this and you're building toward this and it's this sign that you've made it. But in many ways for me, uh, it, I'm not, once it, it happened, of course there was some excitement, but it wasn't at all what I expected. And for one, you know, there is this glorified vision of what it means to go public and you picture the people up on the balcony uh, at the stock exchange ringing a bell and every, all the traders on the floor cheering. But unfortunately, that's the New York Stock Exchange. Mm-hmm. And we were becoming public on the NASDAQ, which is a totally electronic exchange. So yeah. there is no bell, or is now actually, but there was no bell back in 2002. <laughs> no confetti, there's no ticker tape, there's none of that crap. It all happens you know, in a windowless service, server room in Weehawk in silent, New Jersey or something. Silent like ceremony. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and so the place you then go to have some semblance of uh, mark the event is we went to the Merrill Lynch trading floor, which is similar to the Blockbuster conference room, this full floor of a building in Manhattan filled with desks and people on four and five phones at, at once, you know, matching buyers and sellers. And even then when they go, okay, we're com- going public today, nothing happens. You're just waiting for the traders to find the right price. And then when they finally price, if there's anything that's special, 
it's you're watching, they go up, oh, the first trade is just about to happen. And then you watch the ticker tape, that's the scroll that, that runs along mm-hmm. the, the room. And all of a sudden there you see it and you see the NFLX and then a price next to it. And you go, yay. It's and then real. you open, yeah. it's real and you open some champagne. But you know, it take, there's a, so there's the moment of ceremony. You know, when I was doing the play-by-play by telephone to our, I was in New York, to our headquarters in Los Gatos, California, to everyone had come in early at 6.30 in the morning for this breakfast. But I was doing this play-by-play and I describe it in the book as if I was trying to stall during a rain delay at a baseball <laughs> uh, broadcast. Not a lot that they're rolling out the tarps, you know, uh, they're all huddled in the dugout. There's just nothing going on. But you know, the, the real moment for me was afterwards. And I had my son with me, my son, uh, Logan, who at the time, I'm going to get this wrong. I think he was eight. Yeah. And, uh, it, it was exciting. And, you know, we were there together and afterwards, uh, I knew exactly what I wanted to do to celebrate, um, having just gone public and all of a sudden having had a financial transaction, which for me was very meaningful in terms mm-hmm. of changing um, my options in life. You know, in some ways after that, I wouldn't never need to work again if I didn't want to. And I remember sitting in the taxi as we kind of was driving downtown in New York and looking out the window and seeing all these people and going, oh my God, they're all on their way to work or they all have to work. And if I don't want to, I guess I don't have to. But then realizing, but I nothing's really going to change. I kind of want to. And I know after this is done, I'm going to go back to work and I'm still going to run the company. This is what I'm doing. And it's what I like doing. And I also realized that I'm not in the cab on the way to go have a really expensive steak dinner with fancy, with some old champagne and just lighting cigars with wads of cash or something like that. (laughs) Um, Because what I was doing was bringing my son I grew up in New York, but my son was born in California and grew up in California. And I was taking him to get his first slice of New York pizza. Nice. And I go, and I realized, no, I'm, I'm exactly where I want to be. I'm with my son. We're going to get him New York pizza. And then, I'll, then I'm done. I'll get in the plane and I'll go back to work. And, that, and the satisfaction was the journey. This end point is not the be all or the end all end all. I'm, I'm curious to know how you as a, as you know, Netflix is, is co-founder, but also first CEO, how you personally developed over the years. I mean, I think you spent seven years there and obviously through different phases, right? From being this tiny company that very few people knew about, you know, doing one thing, talking to a blockbuster, that not going away, and then taking this thing public. What was that journey like for you as a CEO? And how did you accommodate being different stages or, or of, of a CEO across different life cycles? You know, for me, what Netflix did was cement my understanding of the meaning of success. But n- not, I'm not talking about IPO success or financial success or big... Co- for me, I realized it cemented for me that the idea for me was success, but was something totally different. And how do you define it? 
I was kind of lucky enough to figure out pretty early on two really important things. Um, what I like to do and what I'm good at. Hmm. And what I realized through the journey um, was that that's early stage companies. That's those early years when most of the paths you go down are dead ends. When most of the time you're dealing with uncertainty of the challenge of keeping your team rallied, of making these prioritizations, of this focus, of this triage. I love that. I love that coming to work and sitting around the table with really smart people solving really interesting problems. Uh, and here's the immodest part. Uh, I've learned I'm actually really good at it. I have this kind of innate sense of what's important, even though everything's on fire. I can put the blinders on and focus on it at the expense of other things. I can rally a team. I'm really good with ambiguity and uncertainty. I'm really good at making decisions when I have to do it with incomplete or inconclusive or even contradictory information. And what I found at Netflix is that as Netflix gained the external success, which is it did have its IPO. All of a sudden we had a repeatable scalable business model. We were able to hire these unbelievable world-class people. I began to realize that I still loved the company. I mean, the way you would love a child, but that I no longer was in love with the things I was doing every day. And then more importantly, I wasn't very good at it. Mm. I just didn't have that skill set that it takes when you have a thousand employees. And I realized that what success meant was being able to do the things you loved. And that was not running a big company like Netflix. It was getting back to working with small companies. Um, yeah. And I think that that's what the journey for Netflix for me was. And, you know, I look back on the success Netflix had during the seven years I was there, and I certainly reflect on the incredible success Netflix has had over the last 15 years since I left. And there's a huge amount of pride I have in what Netflix has, has become, become, because in many yeah. ways, Netflix, like a child, has a huge amount of my DNA. Of course. You know, I helped set it on that path. Um, this whole issue of being about finding entertainment you love came from those very early days with Reed and I. The culture came from those very early days. A lot of the decisions we made about how and when to transition to streaming. Um, what about the I name, don't, by the way? There's, there's I don't some... miss being there. You know, I, that, yeah, yeah. I, I couldn't do it. I'm just not that kind of guy. So the name? I, I just wanted to ask quickly because I know that there's, there's some... Uh... Yeah, different discussions about the name. So just curious to know on, on that topic that you bring up, where did the name come from? <laughs> so that came actually, obviously, a few months before a launch. And, and people have to know that when you do a startup on day one, you need a company name because you need to incorporate as something. You've got to have something on the paychecks. You've got to take a lease under some name. You don't want the pressure necessarily of what your real name is going to be because finding a real name is really hard because you've got to find something which is catchy or evocative or short where you can get the domain name, where you can get the Twitter handle on the Instagram and doesn't mean go screw yourself in Norwegian. You know, <laughs> you've got to have, it's, it's a hard set of criteria. Um, and so we, you have a beta name and we had a beta, our beta name was kibble. Like the dog. Are you serious? Yeah. Mark, this is, this is new info, man. I didn't know about this. <laughs> no kidding. Kibble. Yeah, it was kibble. It was kibble.com. 
Okay. And it was kibble.com, a quick segue for two reasons. One, I own the domain name already. Oh, but snap. number two is that uh, uh, one of my expressions from many years in the product business prior to Netflix was that it, it's not a success unless the dogs eat the dog food. That you mm. can have the most brilliant marketing campaign for dog food. You could have the best self sp shelf space displays but none of that counts for nothing if the dogs didn't eat the dog food. And I wanted people to remember that fundamentally it's all about the customer. So kibble it was. And here's the real segue. I still have that domain. If you go to kibble.com, you'll come to my website. And here's the inside tip between you and me. If you send an email to mark at kibble.com, I'll get it. So, um, Some ins insider tips here. <laughs> insider <laughs> tips, for, just, for the, uh, uh, just for your, 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 your followers. Um, but anyway, so then you need the real name. And we, of course, struggled. We had a big whiteboard and we had two columns. And one was for names that kind of evoked the internet. And one for names that evoked movies. And we just brainstormed the two columns and then mix and matched. And they were ridiculous. I mean, one it's hard to can remember them. One of my favorites was replay.com, which I really liked because Replay it was nice. a, a video rental, but yet you had to send it back. And another one was not so good cinemacenter.com, but the name mm. was available. Uh, Netpix, uh, Webflix, and, and then one of them was Netflix. And people didn't like Netflix. And the thing they didn't like about it was twofold. One is flicks. F-L-I-X. And I, I'm looking at you. Maybe you're old enough to remember this, but back in the 80s and early 90s, a, a, a flick was, was, was a thing called a skin flick, which was a porno. They were called skin flicks. Oh, really? They're not yeah. all that. Well, yeah, yeah sh sure. <laughs> <laughs> sure you didn't. Um, they were called skin flicks. So the real thought there was evocative of a porno. Um, and that big X on the end didn't help anything. Gotcha. But listen, all the other ones sucked. And so uh, it was, was a little bit, por little bit porny, but, you know, <laughs> Netflix it was. We'll roll with it. Uh, what I love too is about when you were saying your segue about the dog food and kibble and that whole uh, kind of analogy, you actually say something, I think when in the early days too, when going back to when you, you guys were exploring that rental space, um, you did so many tests with marketing campaigns and just trying to get this uh, other revenue stream launching and, and progressing. And you just found that basically you, you came to this conclusion that if a product is crap, uh, as much as you put stuff around it, you know, and you polish it and you make it look neat and sexy, it's just never going to resonate with the consumer versus if a product is good and it's desired as crappy as it can be fundamentally, it'll still be desired come hell or, or, or high water. So I found that to be very, very critical. I think that's probably one of the biggest insights that we took away from Netflix. You know, my whole career before I got into technology, the first 20 years, 15 years of my career was a direct marketing guy. Mm -hmm. So everything was about testing and everything was about analytically understanding what worked and what didn't work and trying things, which is why I was so keen on when I saw the internet coming along going, this is the place for taking e-commerce, the commerce to a whole new level. Um, but you're right. At the beginning, especially when we transitioned away from selling to rental and we were desperate, we tried a thousand things. And at first I was kind of this um, perfectionist 
and doing these tests designed specifically for tests, like custom photography and We'd fight over every word of copy and we'd stress test the site and every link was double checked. And, and then of course it would fail and you'd waste three weeks in a failed test. And we began doing these tests faster and faster and faster and faster. And they got crappier and crappier and crappier with, you know, the broken links and we crashed the site and misspellings and the wrong images. And like you pointed out, it didn't make a difference. And that was this huge insight for Netflix, which is it didn't make a difference if it was a bad idea, no matter how good the test was because per perfect executed test of a bad idea still failed. But the insight was that all you had to do was find the glimmer of the good idea and then people immediately would flock to it. You know, they'd reboot the site over and over again. They'd click the links, they'd mail us or call us or come to the door. And then you instantly knew there was something there and you knew exactly what to fix. And it was that insight that it's not about having good ideas and that has informed my whole thing for the last 20 years, that ideas are unimportant. There's no such thing as a good idea. What there is, is building a system and a process and a culture that'll let you try thousands of bad ideas. Mm. Because that's the only way you make progress, is this rapid iteration through ideas that you have no idea if they're gonna work or not. But only by figuring out a quick, easy, cheap way to try them, do you make progress? And today, the biggest skill that I look for in an entrepreneur that I think differentiates people who succeed from those who fail is not how good their ideas are, it's how clever they can be about figuring out quick, easy, cheap ways to try things. Right. And that is immediately apparent when you're good at that. And that's what I look for. And, and you obviously advise, I mean, post Netflix, you're part of so many, uh, you know, startups that, that you help either on a, as a board member or as an advisor in different capacities. Um, and, and one of the things I love about your story is you had that foundational self-awareness and kind of humility to know when to step away, which is so difficult. And it's not like you did this when, you know, in the, in the late 90s when you guys were just first launching. You basically stepped away right after the, 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 the IPO. It's kind of like just at the, you know, at the start of what this, this behemoth is becoming, you know, what, what once was David versus Goliath is now kind of changing into, into the beast that we all kind of saw coming. So I think that's, that's, that's really critical. But for a lot of people listening, that can be difficult too, you know, and, and I've, I've seen this a lot too, right? And, and I'm sure you have where it's like a tech CEO who's very technical, uh, but doesn't have the same kind of communication skills or same charisma or whatever that maybe other CEOs are needed in that kind of position or state. How did you build that self-awareness and just know when the timing was right for you to, to change paths? You know, part of it comes from this realization of what the important things in life are. Mm -hmm. um, and for me, realizing that what made me happy was being able to do the things that I'm good at and the things that I like. But there was a more fundamental realization, which is that when, when I started Netflix, um, my dream was, of course, to be a CEO of a big successful company. But as we got into it, I realized that this dream was more complicated than that. That first of all, it was not just one and all, that there was, the dream was being held by a lot of people. Like my investors were sharing in this dream. My employees certainly were sharing in this dream. 
and my customers in some degree were sharing in the stream and that I owed it to them to do everything I could to make sure it was successful. But that meant I had to examine my own dream, which is, did I have to split them? Which was more important, this dream of me being the CEO or the company being successful? And I realized that fundamentally, I probably was not the right person to ensure um, the success of the company if I was to do this all by myself. And the first big step toward that was when was having Reed Hastings come in and join the company full time. Cause for the first year and a half, he was not, you know, yeah. I was, he was off pursuing his education thing and I was starting and growing a company, but he was staying very involved. And when he proposed, when he proposed coming in to join me at first, that was really traumatic. But then I realized that he was, right, that if the two of us ran this together, we didn't just double the chance of success, we you know, tenfold increased the chance of success. And it required stepping back and saying, I'm willing to have part of my dream not be my dream anymore. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of, every CEO has to do that, is you have to recognize what are your limitations? What are you good at? Um, are you the right person for this next stage of the company? But fundamentally, you have to say to yourself, what, what do you want? You know, what really is important to you? And I think that's part of the problem these days. A lot of people are becoming entrepreneurs for the wrong reasons. They mm-hmm. think it's about this external validation of success, that it's about money or about fame or about pitching or about being on Shark Tank or I don't know what the dreams are. But uh, the, the thing that an entrepreneur does every day is come in and sit around that table with the smart people and solve problems. And most of the time, the things you try don't work. And you that as being the emotionally satisfying, fun thing to do. The success, it's pretty rare. That's amazing. Well, listen, we we have five more minutes, Mark. I I do want to touch on two more things. I was looking through your LinkedIn profile and and the one thing I think that is going to blow away a lot of people, this, to be honest, this is probably the most shocking thing I I didn't know about you was that you have a bachelor's in geology. So, and and the reason why I bring that up is it's not, it's it's shocking, but you know, I was expecting like computer side, probably business marketing or something of that sort. Um, How does a geologist transition into entrepreneurship, let alone into tech? So this, this, there's a lot of cons- there's a lot of inconsistency in my life, but there's a lot of consistency, and I chose to be a geology major in college because I thought it was fun. I'm a big outdoorsman. I've been climbing, rock climbing, mountaineering, uh, backcountry skiing my whole life, and when I saw that geologists got to go on these amazing field trips all the time, well, sign me up for that. And again, this was not about me thinking, what do I need to do to make a lot of money in the future? This is not about me going, what, what do my parents expect? I didn't think what was going to happen with a degree in geology. It just was fascinating and interesting. And so I did it. But more importantly, you said it was a Bachelor of Arts in geology, not a Bachelor mm-hmm. of Science. And so what I was really learning was how to learn. The most right. important classes I took in college were not mineralogy, or seismology. It was public speaking. It was composition. It was the philosophy courses where I had to learn how to make and defend an argument or how to detect bullshit, how to express myself in a written form, how to convince people in a written form, how to do it speaking out loud. 
And those are the things that I use and have used every single day, you know, pretty much for the rest of my life. The geology, still fun, but <laughs> it was never intended to be the, uh, the career. Awesome, awesome. And, and to wrap this up, Mark, for people listening 20 to 30 years old, let's say aspiring founders, entrepreneurs, what's that one thing you'd want to leave them with, you know, to, to kind of wrap up everything that we discussed today? The most important thing is if you have an idea, if you want to try something or do something or make something or build something, you just have to start. Most people don't start. Most people have some reason they don't start. Oh, I need to finish my degree. Oh, I need to raise money. Oh, I need a technical co-founder. Oh, I blah, 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 blah. Bullshit. You just need to start. Your idea, whatever it is, it's probably wrong. But your idea, your job is to figure out why it's wrong. Take those initial steps to begin learning by colliding your idea with reality. That's what an entrepreneur does. That's what you have to do. And again, as I said earlier, the skill is in how can I figure out a cheap, easy, quick way to try this without building my app, without starting my company, without hiring a person. Just do something. If you aren't willing to take those first steps down the path, unless you can see what's going to happen, you're too late. So start down the path. What's the worst going to happen? You see a bear, you turn around and come back. But <laughs> try. That's what makes life uh, exciting. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Mark. I really, really appreciate it. And for those who do want to check out Mark's book, That Will Never Work, uh, feel free to go order it, connect with Mark. I think he's on LinkedIn, Instagram. He's a pretty active entrepreneur and a CEO who, who really takes that time to share that wisdom across different podcasts as well. So, uh, man, I'm, I'm really grateful, honestly, for, uh, for, for the hour that you gave me and, and uh, to those listening. So thank you very much. This was fun. Well, thanks so much and good luck to everybody out there with an idea. And thanks again for having me on. If you found this podcast useful, make sure to share it out with your community. And if you haven't already done so, subscribe to the podcast. And I'll see you next time.